Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Kayla Parker, and you're about to listen to my chat with the woman leading the rollout of space as a service across the Heinz Global Portfolio, which, by the way, includes 539 properties across 205 cities in 24 countries on five continents, representing a whopping 232 million square feet. Annie Rinker, who I've known for over a decade, dating back to my DC days, joins me from her home office in Houston, Texas, to share how Heinz is future-proofing their portfolio with space as a service. She explains why they choose management agreements with operating partners instead of leases or spinning up a new in-house operation, what they look for in an operating partner, and how the right space as a service footprint becomes less riskier than a conventional 10-year lease. Be sure to listen to this episode through to the end for Annie's advice, or I'm going to say warning, to asset owners who are thinking about launching their own in-house space as a service operation. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or topics you want covered by the podcast, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Get your pen and paper ready if you're old school like that because this one's going to be good for note-taking. While you're grabbing that pen, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Newflex. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. And in this episode, I'm chatting with Annie Rinker, Director for the Office of Innovation at Heinz and board member for the Global Workspace Association. Annie has over 13 years experience in the space as a service, brokerage, property management, and asset management fields. She gained her master's degree in real estate finance and development from Georgetown University in Washington, DC. Starting at Car Workplaces as a client services director in 2006, her story is impressive as she climbed the ladder at Carr. If you don't know, Carr operates the seventh largest shared office company in the United States with 32 locations and, more, and nearly 800,000 square feet of office space supporting over 10,000 clients across their portfolio in major cities such as DC, New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, and Boston, to name a few. Annie became vice president of the company before launching Carr's managed office product called Work Ready. Now, throughout her career, she's managed co-working facilities. She's been responsible for all financial and operational components and managed a regional sales team of co-working managers. Now, she continues to build on the intersection of co-working and traditional commercial real estate by exploring other ways to drive value in buildings through the Heinz co-working platform called The Square. Annie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Caleb. Annie, I remember us doing a deal back in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, way back in my DC days when I had my own flex space brokerage. Can you sort of touch on your background a little from Carr and how you're bringing your experience there into Heinz? Yeah, of course. And I think it's it's really fun and exciting to see how both of our careers have taken this trajectory from those days back in uh, Tyson's Corner. So, you know, it, Carr was a, it was a great place. We worked on a really, a lot of really great projects. Oliver Carr, who's Oliver Carr Jr., he's really a visionary in real estate, especially as it relates to co-working. It's funny because he's in his 90s, but still has an incredibly forward-looking vision of real estate. And I remember, it's probably around the time actually in Tyson's Corner, but I remember sitting in a meeting room probably 10 plus years ago, and he put this drawing up on the board of a building that 
serviced all types of clients and gave them room to grow with sort of this lower end product for people to gain entry into the building, growing through co-working, private office model, et cetera, and then kind of graduating into the spec suite, speculative suite concept, and then finally signing a long-term lease in the building. And it's funny because now I think a lot of landlords sort of have that vision and, and they totally see that. But 10 years ago, he was really crazy. But I, 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 you know, we built on that idea over my career at Carr with him and a really great team that we had there. It was a really an incredible experience. And towards the end, I was focusing specifically on the assets that we own, that we developed, that we're looking to acquire and really trying to figure out how we could put either a, a full co-working space into the building or elements um, that were sort of carved off the co-working product into the building through property management and really leveraging it to attract and retain clients. And one of the interesting things was looking at how we could really add revenue streams. So I was really big at our co-working platform car to figure out how we could add value through services, but then also how that value could add revenue um, to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking at how we could could do something similar through property management to attract and retain clients through the revenue streams, through some of the more traditional services of co-working, but to property management and traditional leases. And through that strategy, we determined that we could really add about $2 of NOI to a building, which depending on the cap rate and the size of the building could add quite a bit of value to an asset. You know, some of our projects we're looking at adding one to $2 million of value just through this, through this concept that we were developing. So all of that to say, CAR was a great place to cut my teeth, but it, they're really regionally focused family fund. And I joined the Office of Innovation at Heinz because there's a ton of innovation happening right now in real estate. And the Office of Innovation was formed several years ago to focus on that sort of intersection of technology and real estate. And, you know, when I say technology, I think that that includes how technology is changing tenant expectations and, and how tenants are working today. So I'm focused on uh, one specific pillar within the Office of Innovation, which is this concept of agility. So how can we provide a more flexible product to our tenants? Um, And at Heinz, I'm hoping to bring the operational knowledge of co-working uh, that I developed over years at CAR and looking at co-working, not just as the co-working platform, but how it can impact the, the value of the asset as a whole and how we can leverage that through our in-house platform, The Square, as well as ways to work with our asset managers, our property managers, and our development teams to enhance the experience of our tenants. And, and again, it's really not, not that it's all about driving the value of the portfolio, it's, it's also about the tenant experience, but that's a big part of it as we uh, have these conversations with our investor partners. So you talked about the square as as the brand and the platform, and you know, you're the director of office innovation. What's the Heinz portfolio look like globally? And how are you sort of expecting to roll the square out? Yeah, so I think, you know, similar to Carr being a privately owned real estate company, Heinz is as well. Just they're a little bit bigger. And ironically just, enough, just went, a little bit. Just a little bit. I went from one 90 year old visionary to another. So Heinz was founded in 1957 by Gerald Heinz. And we now have a presence in 205 cities and 24 countries. And that equates to about $130 billion of asset under management um, with 165 development projects currently underway. So for our property and asset management portfolios, it's about 540 properties and around 230 million square feet of space. What drives the Heinz approach to space as a service? Uh, And you created a sub-brand under Heinz. Uh, What's sort of the the background behind that? You know, like I said, this really is coming down to the experience of our tenants and the values that we can drive for our investor partners. 
So Heinz has always been a pioneer in real estate development, and we're constantly looking at ways to improve and innovate our products. I think that you can build beautiful buildings and make a lot of money in this industry, but unfortunately, you can also build terrible buildings and make a lot of money in this industry. So Heinz has always been focused on delivering an, an elevated experience for our tenants. And I think that the flex office concept really supports that mission. So real estate is becoming a much more service oriented industry and Heinz sees this as an opportunity to provide a full spectrum of services to tenants. And I think it'll give us an advantage with respect to both retaining business and attracting new clients. So if you look at the current environment as an opportunity, we think that this gives us the ability to evolve our product and to align it with the needs of the contemporary and future office tenants and really gives us the ability to leverage our existing operations platform to further differentiate our management services in the marketplace. And then, you know, that you asked about the sub brand, there was a lot of thought that went into that. I think that, you know, the Heinz as a whole understands the worldwide landscape in which our current and future tenants are working and will will work. And obviously there's a lot shifting in that mindset right now in the current COVID environment, but we recognize that the landscape needs to be modern and elevated for the tenants and flexible workspace is a way to do that. It, it is sort of supported by this dedication to service and, you know, Heinz stands behind its name from an integrity standpoint. We're, we're very much a, a globally trusted company with a very high reputation. The, the name and brand Heinz means so much in the real estate and occupier world. And, and we like to think and, and have been told by our occupiers that it's sort of synonymous with the highest, highest standards in the industry. So it was really important for us to, instead of, you know, some owners are going the management route where the brand of the operator becomes the brand, which I think is totally fine for a lot of owners. Um, but Sorry, we really- can, I, can I just stop you there just to clarify, when you say the brand of the operator, do you, do you mean, can you give an example of, what, of that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, there's there's some like industrious has worked with some other owners before where they sign a management agreement, but they're not doing this white labeled or sub brand product. It is uh, okay. industrious location. Industrious and, location, right? Got it. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, industrious for our first location was our partner, but we wanted to maintain Heinz as sort of our master brand. So we created, there's actually two platforms that were created to sort of go along these lines while still working with Industrious. But we created a platform called Heinz Squared, which is the name of our overall platform, which offers tenants, amenities, technology, services, workspace, et cetera, to help their business grow and flourish. Whereas the Square is part of the Heinz Squared platform, but it's the physical location within the Heinz Squared properties where businesses and tenants experience sort of all the things that the Heinz Squared platform has to offer. So we wanted to leverage our master brand Heinz, but then provide a uniquely differentiated product from a co-working standpoint. And, and we think it's a way to ex exponentially elevate the way our current and future tenants will work. Okay. So I want to unpack that a little bit. So yeah. the, the square if if I'm a if I'm an SME or if I'm a large corporate and I want to I guess get buy some memberships or buy uh, or, or rent out a couple of desks or a few offices with am I going am I engaging the square with that? Yep, you're that would be the square. That's the physical location. Heinz Squared is more so you know this concept of fully integrated building amenities. All that is the the platform that will deliver that is through. Heinz squared. So that's sort of working with our current property management platform, but adding these 
additional elements of technology, of service, of amenities, of this just exponentially, you know, we say it's like Heinz, Heinz again. And so it's, you know, it's this way to create a different experience for the entire building. The square is the flexible office product that will help to add to that experience, but it's just the, it's the flex office product. Okay. Got it. And so you're saying that in your first location, you've partnered with industrious to operate the square flexible office product within the building. Correct. Yep. You said the the word fully or the phrase fully integrated building amenities. I use a term called full stack CRE. I'm wondering if they're the same thing. Can you elaborate on full on, on this fully integrated building amenities? Hind squared is is sort of probably the same thing that that you're saying. It's just the the name and the brand of the platform that we're looking to describe that. So large companies they really have to be nimble right now. Small companies need the ability to quickly grow, and and we think that our platform presents a modern elevated way of working with personalized support and services to match. So really what we're talking about here is the extension of our current property management platform, which has been you know, recognized throughout the globe as being the highest caliber of property management, but then also layering on a suite of workplace hospitality programs and space, and then coupling that with technology solutions so that the experience is different when you walk into the building. So if you think about this from like a tenant journey, Yep. The moment you wake up, you commute to the office, you park your car, you enter the building, you engage with security, you call the lift, you enter your tenant space. So this may be the first hour or two of a tenant's day, but there's over a dozen touch points that I just mentioned in which we can engage there and improve the experience for the tenant. And like we haven't even started talking about food or meeting rooms or the air that the tenant is even breathing. But all of that, you know, we have a way as Heinz and our property management platform to engage and better the tenant experience through all of that. Especially when we start thinking about the return to office and people having more options to work from home or or work remotely. Mm-hmm. With this, the physical office space has to come, it's gonna become more of a want than a need. And owners and managers have to think about service as something that supports culture and collaboration. Some of it's going to be backed by technology, but some of it really requires a human element as well. So, you know, at Heinz, we're really thinking about how we create office environments that people choose to come to when really when they're no longer forced to do so. And so all of this is sort of the the concept of the fully integrated building amenities. So it's the technology and the service and the amenities backed by that technology, but also included through the human element. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you uh, explaining that. And I'm, I'm sure that's at a high level and there's lots of details that we probably yeah. can't get into on this podcast, but that's very interesting. I'm curious, when when you decided to go the operator partner route versus doing it in-house, what drove that decision? We're experts at property management, but co-working is a whole other ballgame. And I think Heinz recognized that early. And this was even like way before me starting at Heinz. Um, I only started back in November and they brought me on as an expert in co-working management but I'm really only one person and the team, the technology, the resources, sort of everything that goes into properly building, staffing, managing, marketing, et cetera, these co-working spaces, there's a ton that goes into that. So having an operating partner that has that infrastructure and expertise already built out and could ensure that Heinz was delivering a product at the highest level was really important to us. And so I think, you know, there is, like I said, a lot of, a lot of smart people, spent a lot of time in a room before me coming on board 
to look at how we delivered a co-working product, recognizing that we had to do so, that Heinz had to figure out how they could start providing this product to their tenants and evaluated all the different options to do so. And ultimately, because of those reasons I just mentioned, decided to partner rather than bringing operations in-house. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of asset owners and, and landlords listening to, to this podcast, specifically with the interest to hear exactly what you're saying. And I'm curious, when you're looking at operating partners, how do, what are you looking at to select the right operating partner for the asset? Is, does it vary per market or how does that what does that look like? I mean, we went through sort of this RFP process a few years back. We partnered with a company called Fifth Wall Ventures to help us uh, in the selection process and ultimately decided on two companies, Industrious and Convene. They were our initial companies that we decided to partner with. And I think a lot of it, it just, it has to do with this concept of alignment. And this is super important when you're looking at your asset strategy and how to incorporate flex is that you have to have a brand that's aligned with your brand. And, and when I, you know, when I say the brand, it's, it's the design, it's the staffing models, it's the technology, it's their growth that they want to do. All of that is super important. But then I think you also have to take it a step further and say, you know, what will your partnership look like? What will that alignment look like on the individual asset level? Because there's so much that goes into the management of these spaces. And there's an, you know, they're, could be an opportunity when you put a space into your building that it could potentially compete with other areas in the building. And so you need to make sure that that you're working with a company that truly is aligned on all levels of the asset and then all levels of your brand and that they're a partner that is uh, willing to work with you. And really, you know, the first couple are going to be, you're going to see bumps in the road. You're going to have you know, things that will come up and you just need to make sure that you have a partner that is communicative and has your, understands your needs and desires, that you understand their needs and desires. And that's, it's a, it's a push and pull on both sides. And so, you know, again, we sort of looked at all of those things and we found that, you know, through the RFP process that Industries and Convene, they had similar visions to Heinz and had the design and infrastructure to support the the goals that we had from a growth standpoint. And considering you're you're rolling out the the subbrand the square, uh, will you have standard operating procedures to keep your to keep everything consistent across all the markets you go into and across all your portfolio? Yeah, yeah, that's the goal. I mean, our our first location opened in March with Industrious as our operating partner. Our second one will be in Salt Lake City with Industrious as well. And and you know we we have Industrious obviously has their standard operating procedures. We have sort of layered on top of that from a branding standpoint and through, you know, ways in which we work with the property management team and the asset team, some additions uh, to what their standards are. But that that's the intent is that, you know, I think it's important in, in co-working, the concept of consistency is extremely important when you are, a you know, a member or a tenant, you, you want the ability to have that same experience regardless of where you are and even down to the Wi-Fi should connect automatically and that you you know that you're going to have, you know, different places to work and access to those different places and how you access those should be similar. And so there is there we are thinking a lot about that consistency and how we're delivering it um, across all of the different different locations that we open. OK, and now one one question that's that came up recently on LinkedIn, someone, in fact, I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, Benjamin over in Cushman in, in Canada, and he had asked if we could answer, what does a financial model for landlords and operators look like that's sustainable for both? Now, 
I can imagine that's going to be on an asset by asset basis. But yeah. do you have any feedback or can you share sort of at a high level what that looks like? When we're modeling this out or building it out, um, we look at each individual project and we look at the four different leasing structures that we have and we figure out, OK, if if for this particular project and the goals of the asset and the goals of the investment partner, which is the best model that we go through? You know, it's sort of on, on one end of the spectrum is a, is a straight management agreement. And then on the far end of the spectrum would be a straight traditional lease. And there's all sorts of variations that we can have in between those. And so, you know, the, the pro forma varies pretty significantly from one to the other. But I think in general, you know, if I'm using very broad terms, you know, the, a lot of co-working locations have this concept of profit profitability around 70 percent. We think that when you're doing a partnership with the landlord and so when us as the landlord doing an agreement with ourselves as the landlord, you know, that that number is reduced down to 40 to 55 percent probably on uh, when you start to uh, see some sort of profitability and that you're you're going over and above what the what the market rent rent would be for that space. And so, you know, we, we go into this concept of, of this underwriting and the underwriting can be very lengthy. Once we determine the leasing model, we go through the underwriting process. A lot of that has to touch on the design of the space and how are we going to build it out? We also have to factor in at that point, what are the other, other amenities in the space? And so is there currently a conference center in the building? And so we're going to tie into that or do we need to provide conference facilities for the rest of the building through what we're building out? So that has to go into the design that ultimately goes into the model and the underwriting and all of that sort of spits out what the expectations are from a from a, a financial standpoint and what kind of alpha are we creating over and above the, the market rent. And so, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it, it does 100 percent vary asset to asset and you have to have a really smart team. Luckily, we do have a very smart team at Heinz that that is great at that underwriting and understands the intricacies of each of our assets. I'm going to ask this question slightly differently, and you touched on it briefly about the conference center and the design. But when when you're looking at the assets across your portfolio, because you said you've had you have two of these square locations now, and and you've got a massive global portfolio. So as you look ahead over the next couple of years and you roll it out, how do you determine which assets, the spaces, the service footprint, the square is going to fit into based on the services that asset needs to deliver a certain customer experience? So like I said, I think the, the capital stack and the partners of each of the projects are extremely unique and require a lot of navigating. So, you know, we work really closely with the employees at the region. And I mean, those are the ones that are really driving the requests. We sort of see um, the Office of Innovation and, and our group who's focusing on the square as almost a, a resource out to the regions that are the, the teams developing the projects or, you know, acquiring or doing asset re repositioning. And so... You know, it's those regions who they intimately understand projects and the asset goals, along with the goals of the investor partners, which are really important to us. So right now we're doing a lot of educating of the projects and the regional teams to explain to them options that they have for adding co-working into their projects. And, you know, like I said, it's a lot of this running through models and the underwriting to see if they pencil out. And interestingly enough, recently we've been evaluating our global portfolio to monitor the co-working operations that are currently in our space. So we have about 2.2 million square feet or that's what 200 200 plus square meters to to see what happens when those leases to see what happens with those leases like you know 
Mm-hmm. Is there going to be a massive repositioning or, or you know, re-footprinting, I guess, of co-working? Is there going to be a massive bankruptcy that happens? If and, if and when that happens, we need to provide options to our project teams to see if there are any movements with the leases. So we've got assets in the top markets across the globe. I personally think that many of our projects would be excellent spaces for co-working, but we have to evaluate each and every opportunity, looking at the model, the asset strategy, current amenities, the partner stack, all of that has to factor into the decision if we add a flex office product. So right now we're just fielding a lot of calls from our project teams. And I think a lot of a lot of a lot of times when it doesn't pencil out, some of that has to do with the 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 partners that we have and really what's happening in capital markets right now. And I think that what we're going to see over the coming years is the capital markets is going to start to shift their attitudes on co-working. And with that shift, I think that the calls that we receive at the Office of Innovation for co-working in our projects, I think that and I hope, I'm hopeful that those will start coming in faster than we can even handle. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think what's, the shift will happen, but what needs to happen uh, to make that shift go faster is the valuation methodologies need to evolve mm-hmm. because it's, it's no doubt that the demand for flex and the demand for service is there. But commercial real estate needs to figure out how to underwrite the risk. And and I think, you know, we might see even investor profiles in, in the capital stack shifting as well. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because there's, you know, you say it, it's space as a service, not just co-working. And, you know, we see that as this whole spectrum of flexibility. And if you've got co-working on one side, I do agree that there's a lot of risk inherent in that model. Even if you remove the the the, the sort of that arbitrage model with us being the landlord, there's still risk from the, the term of the agreements that you're signing. But I think as you start moving up the spectrum and sort of start looking at this spec suite product and you know some of the, the longer term while still flexible products that exist in that spectrum, it's interesting because I think you actually are becoming less risk. And we talked a lot about this at CAR and I've had a lot of conversations with Heinz as well, but you know, you you have these this footprint that's, you know, 20,000 square feet, if we carve that out into, say, eight different spaces, you know, normally you'd be able to underwrite that for a 10-year deal, you know, with assuming escalations annually, and it's it's very easy to model out. Now, all of a sudden, we're doing three-year leases, and so you're, you think that, oh, shoot, inherently, that's going to be riskier. But if you also start to think about the, the speculative suite in the product, instead of waiting another 18 months between leases and putting another $85 or whatever market is 50 to, you know, a hundred bucks a foot into TI, mm-hmm. you can now break that down and maybe have, you know, a, a three month turnaround with $2 for carpet and paint and you backfill it. And, and if you, if you can figure out how to model it out that the rest of the industry understands and agrees with, then you're looking at something that, in my opinion, you know, isn't quite as risky as a 10-year deal that, you know, rolls in 18 months and, and millions of dollars later, you can maybe get another tenant. And so I think that, uh, again, that's that's sort of my opinion and the market is not there yet, but I do think that we will see them buying into this concept because it will, first of all, the, the tenants want it. And so we need to catch up to it. But I do think that it, it, it will make the capital markets feel more comfortable as we start looking at sort of the longer term spectrum of flexibility. So essentially the right space as a service footprint becomes less riskier than a conventional 10 year lease. Now that's something that should be tweeted. 
So looking looking ahead, and clearly you've got your finger on the pulse of customer ex- expectations of what experience should be delivered in a building, not just in the space as a service footprint, but the building overall. Um, can you share what your view is on the minimum amenities that a building should offer? Well, I think that's a loaded question because especially if you start looking at the different assets and the classes, et cetera. So I'm going to speak specifically to really like class A. Um, But, you know, I think that amenities like collaboration space, community space, outdoor areas, and I'm biased, but a well-managed, flexible office space is going to be incredibly important. And And I think it's, you know, we can't, not talk about COVID as well right now in the current environment. So I think that those are going to be extremely important post COVID. And then I, there's things like that people don't normally consider as amenities, but if we think about like parking ratios. So if we consider post COVID mass transit, there's going to be a, a higher health and safety concern around that. And so we need to look at our assets and consider, you know, what what are we doing with things like parking? But then you also have to consider longer term with autonomous vehicles coming in. And so, you know, how are you going to shift your asset strategy to future proof yourself so that you're providing the parking ratios that people require right now in a post-COVID environment? But you're also future proofing so that you're considering what you do with that space when autonomous vehicles are coming online in the next 10 plus years. And then amenities, I think, too, you know, you have to start thinking about even down to sort of this like concept of package apocalypse right now. You see it. We see it a lot in residential buildings, and it's even more so going to happen in office buildings that we need a place where there's this packages are delivered and, and things like cold storage. And so as the office and work and life and everything starts to continue to to meld together, and I think that we've seen that increase tenfold in this world of COVID now where everybody is working from home and work and life are one and the same. As we return to the office, that's not going to stop. Like, you know, there are going to be some things that humans by nature will sort of uh, revert back to the old ways of doing things, but a lot of it will not just stop. And so, you know, how we consume products and how we shop while working and all that will continue. And so things like cold storage, need to become part of our asset strategy and offer it as an amenity um, to our tenants. I think health and wellness was something that people were sort of talking about as like a nice to have in this hip new thing pre-COVID. I think in you know the, the future, immediate future, but also long-term future, that's only gonna continue. And so certifications like a well certification for a building, I think is going to be really important. You know, again, speaking to transit, but do you have bike storage facilities and do you have a, a way for people to shower if they're commuting to work via bike? You know, a gym has always been something that's in a building, and but I don't think a gym anymore can be this sort of like, you know, shove it in a corner and call it a gym because nobody's ever going to use it. I think people now more so than ever want really high caliber gyms in their building and access to that as an amenity um, because people care more about wellness now than they ever have in, I think, like human history. And so those are all, all things I think that really, really go into it. And then again, me being a little bit biased towards this concept of flexibility, but, you know, I, I think that medium and long-term sort of this, the, the small flex suites on against sort of that speculative suite concept, one to 3000 square feet with a, common space, well-furnished, technology-equipped, expertly serviced, while still having their own self-contained amenities on short-term basis is going to be really, really important to to uh, tenants into the future. 
I was at a conference in Barcelona last year, and we were talking about the how buildings in the future will care about people. And I think what you're talking about with the amenities, we need to be thinking about what people want and how we can make people feel like they're taken care of. And mm-hmm. so the, the stack that you just described uh, hits the point on that. Uh, another question for you then, do you think with all the remote work, you mentioned COVID, with all the remote work that we're all doing these days, coming out of this pandemic, do you think there's going to be an increase in demand for space as a service? Uh, yes. That was simple. <laughs> <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I mean, I think if you have ask anybody in this industry, they're going to say yes, because in part, if it doesn't, none of us are going to have jobs anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I think the reality is the pandemic has sort of passed its peak in many countries. But as the return to office it, it, it's starting to increase, but it's really still in its infancy. And so nobody really knows exactly how this is going to pan out. But the team at the Office of Innovation at Heinz, we've done a ton of research over the last two months to try to put data behind this question. And I think that, you know, what we sort of said is that we we have to look at the broader office strategy and the potential short-term and long-term, or I guess more permanent impacts of COVID and how that's going to impact how we consume office space. But we also said, okay, like, let's look at past cycles to determine how the flex office sector as a whole will likely come out of this pandemic. And that the latter was really difficult because, as you know, our, our industry as a whole, I would say, is in its infancy still, especially if you look at, you know, in 2006 when I started, it's it's a whole different world than it is right now. But, you know, I think combining both of those those research topics and also including tenant interview surveys all that research, um, we determined that remote work policies will probably be here to stay, at least for those who can. Not all employee employees can work remotely. There's also, you know, a lot out there about the office being dead, but the reality is that many do want to return to the office. And I think about sort of three different categories of people, sort of the the younger end, so younger employees, Gen Zers that are really going to populate our office over the next 10 years, they want and need access to coaching and mentoring and community building. And so they want to return to the office. We also have, you know, employees with sort of families at home. They have a difficult time sometimes working from home and sort of creating um, a balance between work and life. And then you also have uh, sort of the, the in-betweeners and, and a lot of those live in like studio or one-bedroom apartments in downtown districts and their work from home options working from a one-bedroom or a studio it's just not set up to accommodate working from home so sort of all three of those groups are a snapshot of of people that are currently working from home and likely will want to return to the office and and i think that there's there is a distinction between working from home and remote work and that's really important i think what COVID has pushed really quickly, pushed all of us forward into realizing that we don't need to be at the office to be productive. There are certain elements that the office does provide that we cannot get from working from home or even working from a remote uh, situation. But I think that what COVID has taught us is that we do have the option and we can still be productive and that it's given, you know, I think it's given managers the comfort the comfort level to say, hey, I don't need my employees sitting here in the office to trust that they're doing work because they've been doing that over the last, you know, X number of, of months. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of firms will be more accommodating to employees who desire to work remotely. 
And I think co-working is going to help to fill that void. You know, co-working already started to fill that void for corporate users pre-COVID. We saw that, you know, over the last two to three years with this huge influx of enterprise users flooding co-working um, uh, spaces. And, and WeWork's initial demand driver came from people working from home who didn't want a full-time work-from-home scenario. And they found a solution to that problem in co-working. So I think that the growth of our our flex portfolio and space as a service in general is going to be pretty integral part of the real estate recovery process. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I don't know if you saw the video with Zuckerberg a week or two ago when he made his announcement about their future strategy. But he one of the things that struck me is he talked about how they, before making before deciding on this policy, they had no meeting Wednesdays, basically. And which means that the senior management could not hold meetings. And so it enabled people to be productive and, and, and not be distracted. But what ended up happening is because most people could be productive from anywhere, it ended up being work from home Wednesdays. <laughs> so so the rest of the days they came in and had their meetings. And I think instead of that being work from home Wednesdays being one day a week, maybe we'll see in the future the majority of the time being work from home and you only come in for meetings uh, a few days a week. Who knows? And it certainly will vary from uh, company to company. But you know, right now, space as a service represents, and it's an average, varies from city to city, but it's less than 10% of the overall office stock in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a market. But uh, JLL predicts it's going to be up at 30% by 2030. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I think I, I do. I 100% think that is the case. And I think, again, if, if we're considering the spectrum of flexibility, it could potentially be more. You know, we have to start looking at amenities like collaboration spaces, community spaces, outdoor areas, well-managed flex spaces. All of those are going to be more important than ever, and they have to be well-appointed. They have to be well-serviced. They have to be well-designed. We have to create environments in which people, again, they want to come to the office. If they don't need to come anymore or they need to come on, you know, Tuesdays for a meeting, what's going to bring them back on Monday Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, or some sort of combination therein where they're creating, you know, working from the office, but then sort of a, a work remote scenario. So I think in that work remote scenario, people who don't want to work from home, they'll sort of have this concept of a hub and spoke model that I know a lot of people are talking about right now. But I think that people will sort of want that different areas to work and, and different regions to work in. And We've seen it over the last 10 years. There's so much that has gone into the changing environment of technology, of demographics, of how people uh, live and where they live. And all of that has played into co-working being the industry that it is today. And that is continuing. Like technology is only going to increase our our travel of work and you know cross-border cross-continental travel is only going to continue all these things are only going to continue to increase and so i do think that a lot of the stock out there will be inflexible i'm not saying that 30 percent. in fact i actually think that co-working will not be 30 percent. but if we look at the flexible spectrum Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the spectrum of flexibility, then yes, it will be. And I think that there's a potential for it to be more where we're providing these short term, you know, leases. And again, it, capital markets may never may never dig deep into the, the uber flexible short term 
single office or even shared desk concept of co-working, but they're certainly going to get on board with with the other end of that spectrum. And I think that that's going to help drive the overall office stock to be potentially more than 30%. Yeah, you make a good point. And I think our industry tends to, I guess, blur these different different keywords, co-working, space as a service, flex space, et cetera. But I think space as a service is sort of the overall arching category. And, you know, co-working is certainly a part of that, but your spec suites and meeting rooms, et cetera, are all different parts of the, the service element along with the hospitality. And I think, you know, going back to the conversation about Facebook and some of the other big players who have announced that they're going to go remote or remote first, you know, some questions have been asked, what's going to happen to all that office space? And, you know, I would I would argue that, you know, it might not be long-term traditional leases anymore, but the, the use will change of the space and, and maybe that space will become flexible and that's where people will access on demand or on shorter terms. One one final question before we get into the quick fire round, and considering your background and you know obviously what you're doing now, what's your view on asset owners who go the in-house route or route to operate their own space as a service um, up a footprint? Mm. Uh, I think it can be either really smart or a very terrible decision. I- Car was an asset owner and they had an in-house operations. It served them very, very well. But that's also because they were hyper-focused on the operations behind the co-working arm. Uh, they're also a developer of hotels and understand that there's a lot of complexity that goes into the uh, operating platform of a co-working brand. And I think a lot of owners today see the yield that can be achieved through co-working and think, well, I've got property management. How hard could it be? But I can tell you firsthand from managing these spaces, managing the managers and, and seeing overall you know, platform Co-working management is nothing like property management. I think that they very well can work together. And I think that they should, in many instances, be part of the same team. But you need to look at co-working operations as a separate division with a separate tech stack, marketing plan, communications plan, et cetera. And, you know, I think it's important, too, to look at not just the individual asset strategy. That's important to look at. Does does co-working work in this asset? But if you're looking to bring an in-house brand to your company, you have to look at your overall portfolio strategy because to, to build out a proper team and the infrastructure for a co-working brand, it can cost over a million dollars annually. And I'm not even talking about sort of upfront capital to start this. I'm just talking about your team and the software that goes into to managing these spaces it can be over a million dollars. So if you're planning on running one or two locations, you either and you bring it in-house, you'll either be running at a loss or you're not running the space properly. And it's providing a terrible experience that's not going to enhance the overall portfolio um, or company brand that you're offering. So I think that you have to put in the investment to build out your team. You have to put in the investment to build out your tech and the infrastructure. So if you're planning on a portfolio wide rollout and you've got the stomach and really your investors partner, your investor partners also have the stomach for, you know, an 18 to 24 month return it could be really smart to bring co-working operations in-house. I think an in-house strategy is a way to ensure that alignment that I spoke to earlier. Like mm-hmm. you have to make sure that your co-working strategy is perfect aligned with the asset strategy. And, and when I talk about that, that alignment, I mean, I'm, again, I'm sort of talking micro and macro. You've got, you know, alignment with the, the property management, with your leasing strategy, but then also what's your, what's your hold strategy on that asset? Is this a long-term hold or are you, you, you're doing a short-term hold on that? Either one of those could work with co-working if you're bringing it in-house. 
but you just have to make sure that 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 your individual assets are aligned, but then also your whole portfolio strategy is aligned. So again, I think there's there's owners out there who sort of got into it, not really considering everything that goes into managing these spaces. And it, it has it has uh, not worked well for them, although there's plenty out there who really have and have put in the investment and are going to do quite well as a result. Well, that's good advice. Thank you for sharing that, Annie. I want to move into the quick fire round now. And you know how this works. You listen to the podcast. So just yep. a couple of quick questions with quick answers. And the first one is, who inspires you in our industry? Well, I would say that, and this is sort of a, a biased response, I guess, but Oliver Carr has been a huge part of my career. He's the reason I even got into this industry in the first place, and he's such a visionary. I'd say he's somebody that still certainly inspires me, and and I I believe in that vision that he gave me 10 years ago, and I think that it, I've built my career around it. So, well, And you've done well at your career, so that's fantastic. Great answer. Okay, so now... You've already said you, you already know you listen to the Workbook podcast, so you can't say this one. But what <laughs> what other podcasts uh, do you consume, and and also what websites do you consume to stay up to date on industry trends? Yeah, I think I try to swing on this like pendulum between listening and reading to educational learning books uh, and podcasts to like on one end of the spectrum to sort of these fun beach reads. <laughs> so, and it's not that learning and, and, and expanding my mind can't be fun, but sometimes it's just fun to turn tune off. So like every morning I listen to The Daily, which is New York Times podcast. I also really like uh, revisionist history. I think one of the fun ones, and I think anybody who's into design should listen to 99% Invisible. That's one of my favorites. It's a really cool podcast and, and it's design, not like with the with the big D, it's sort of all the different things that go into design that you don't ever think about. And it's they they have really fun, pretty short uh, podcasts that come out, I think, weekly. And, and I recommend listening to that. Oh, that's really cool. I haven't heard of that before, so I'll have to check them out. Yeah. OK, so I know you're in Houston now and you were living in D.C. before and we were talking about our D.C. days um, yeah. last week on a call. But, uh, you know, where, where do you like to travel for vacation? Where do you go? Do you, you know, if, when you get your first vacation after this pandemic, okay. are you going to go back to D.C. or are you going to oh. go somewhere abroad? Where are you going? Well, D.C. holds my heart for sure. I probably it probably won't be my first trip, although I do miss it dearly. I've just missed miss travel dearly. I am the type of person that there's basically nowhere in this world I would not go. And I have I have alerts out and I subscribe to all the emails that give you like crazy deals to go places. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think, you know, when I'm comfortable going back somewhere, there's a couple places, usually probably Europe, because you can always get a good deal to fly there. And I would probably go anywhere. But I will say like, if I'm one of the things, and, and you're asking me in a week that's particularly difficult because probably one of my most favorite places is kind of a nostalgic place for me is Emerald Isle, North Carolina. And I say this week particularly because my family is there right now. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever missed a summer there ever in my entire life. Like when my mom was pregnant with me, I think I was at the beach um, or she was <laughs> at the beach. And so if I was still in D.C., it's like a six hour drive from Houston. It's like a 30 hour drive or I have to get on a flight. And neither of those were, were an option. So I don't know. I like obviously travel basically anywhere would be high on my list. Um, anywhere I'm, with a beach. <laughs> yeah, I'm particularly missing Emerald Isle, North Carolina right now. All right. Fair enough. Well, 
uh, certainly appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your insights and you know congratulations on all the uh, success you've had in your career and all the best wishing you much luck as you expand the square across the Heinz portfolio. Well, thanks, Caleb. You too. I, I love everything that you do and, and really happy to be part of this. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Annie. Annie Ranker, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone listening today, thank you. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts. Podcasts.